a brief heads up that this week's episode does contain a reference about suicide. Hello, this is Michelle Rado. I have always had so much trouble knowing what I feel, knowing what I think, knowing my own mind about something. Um, I spend so much time taking the consideration of every person around me, every person who could possibly weigh in on something, those closest to me, what does this person think? What does that person think? I have really um, struggled with knowing what it is I think. And writing has been one thing that has been the way that I sort of try and get myself into my own body, literally into my own body of what I feel and what I think. So this has been like my own struggle. It's I think it's a lot of it has to do with fear. It's why I'm doing this podcast <laughs> because I like hearing what other people think. I so treasure hearing other people's um, convictions and then I have to go and think about it for a very long time before I can sort of weigh my own thoughts and my own feelings about it. There's one aspect of life for which I do not have this struggle at all. It's music. With music, there is no judgment. There is no consternation. There is no wringing of hands or dilemma or consideration. Music is so immediate. I either like it or I don't. It is so clear. And... The two spheres of my life um, that I love and am passionate about and have pursued personally and professionally are words, story, narrative, and music, and how those two things intertwine with each other and even create a greater whole when they are combined. So when I heard about the book Fearless Writing from my friend Robin Fisher, who was a writer we heard early on in Daring to Tell, I was like, okay, I have to read this book because Fearless Writing, that's, I can't write because I'm so filled with fear. So I started reading his book. I'm still, oh, him, (laughs) his book. William Knauer is the author, and the voice was like, okay, yeah, this guy is talking to me. I'm about to say the same thing with today's episode of Daring to Tell. So I am thrilled that our guest today is the writer, William Knauer. Here we go. Why do so few people not tap into their unique genius? And I think it's fear of death in some form. I think fear of death is a thing that prevents people from just living. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. 
Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. Nothing's gonna break my fall. There's nothing in the protocol. It's like swimming up a waterfall or taking away the ground. So fearless writing. I felt like had been written for me. <laughs> Good. It had been, clearly. Because <laughs> it was like, that's the thing. I, I mean, I struggle with fear so much and yeah. trying to just let it out on the page. And so I felt like you were speaking to me, which is what this whole thing is about. I mean, you mean this whole thing? You mean this podcast or this writing experience? All of it, yes. Because, uh, you know, the podcast is about writing and about finding the courage to speak the things that we have the yeah. the courage to write. Yeah. Um, and it's all sort of, I don't know, emblematic. Well, I will say this. Thing. I think it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if this is being included, but I, was, I think it's worth offering that one of the things you will learn as you find the courage to say the thing you thought you couldn't say is that the more honestly you can say it, and by honestly, I mean... Tell the specifics of your life, but find the universal within it, because nothing you're writing about is actually about you in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, whether and, you know, so I'm writing about death, for instance, the piece I'm going to read, but obviously it doesn't get much more universal than that. But I use the specifics of my own life experience. You will find that there is it's in going into it. You will find all the other people who's who find overlap in your experience, even though they did not live what you lived. They feel as if. They're writing, you've written for them. Yes. You've written for them, even though obviously you were writing just trying to be honest about your own experience. And that is always the case. And I will tell you, the first time I ever gave a talk, a public talk, and I was very nervous about it, very nervous. It was a little 10-minute thing. I'd never, I'd done theater, but I had not done public speaking where it was just me, Bill, in front of people. So it's a little more, yeah. I thought, exposed. And also, right. who am I? It was going to be kind of inspirational. And I still felt like, did I have the right to do that kind of thing? Right. So I was mm -hmm. I was dealing with all that. And it was this big uh, writer's conference and it was a packed house. And I was standing next to this woman and she would, before my turn to go up, it was like a cabaret. And I was standing next to her, another writer, and we were just sort of chatting. And then my turn came, I went up, boom, did my thing. It went great. I came down and she turned to me and she said, you wrote that for me, didn't you? And that experience has been universal throughout. And it was a great beginning to this part of my public speaking life because that is how it feels at its best, that the, the person feels as though it was just for them. Obviously, it couldn't possibly be, but I do feel there is yeah. an aspect to that, that everything belongs to everyone. So I, d I have heard that. Maybe it was in something that you've said before, but yeah, the more specific you can be, the more universal it's it almost becomes. That's right. You're looking yeah. for that universal. If you're doing personal narrative, it's always the universal within the specific. Yeah. You, know, you yeah. deal with the specifics of your experience, but you know, the piece I'm going to read is about things that I went through and perspectives I have. That's what I write about now, but I never think of them as being about me, even though I am the character in them, but it's not right. about me. I'm just a tool. My experiences are just a tool to hopefully get at something. Well, that's, you know, that's a good description. And I guess before we get too far, into this, I will say, hello, I'm talking with, shall I call you Bill, Bill. Kenauer? Bill is and, fine. And I am thrilled to talk with you today. One thing that I have done from time to time 
I'm reading a book and it feels very personal. You know, we spend this time, it's intimate, you're reading it, you're hearing this voice. So from time to time, there's someone who I feel like, well, I should just write to them. So I'll, I'll reach out to someone and have the chance to talk with them. And then it's this funny moment where I go, oh, well, I feel like I know you, but I'm not sure if I do really know you. And so that's a little bit, I'll just say where I am today. Right, right. Excited to have you on. And I was in your workshop. So there was also that, which was fearless writing and fearless marketing, which is really helpful. And so it's just, um, thank you. It's great to be able to have you here for Daring to Tell. I'm really excited about that. Well, it's great to be here. I love the theme of this, I love the idea behind it. I think it's, I think it's needed. I'm glad you're doing it. Well, I feel like I was put on earth to do this podcast. So wow. I really? Did, yeah. And that's great. And I feel like it kind of goes along with a lot of the stuff that I hear you yeah. say in your workshops and uh and yeah, that's there's nothing better than that. There's a feeling of both excitement and lack of resistance. You know, the the not feeling like you're trying to fit into a pair of shoes that isn't quite right, you yeah. know. That exactly. you, it's and and you know it when it happens. And what's interesting is when it does happen. The book that's coming out in June, I write about this a lot about sort of what is the right fit because I wrote fiction, which really wasn't a good fit for me, but it was close enough. And it wasn't until I start really let myself do what I do now that I understood the difference and I understood the difference between something that really fits and something that almost fits. And right. once you know what really fits, you don't want to go back. Yeah, and and I think that that difference of like that little shade of what's off can be a whole put you on some whole other trajectory where you end up being like what that's right that's right it's it's profound how small it can be and um i mean i think that there's no more important question for a person than, than what is the best fit for whether it's the work you do or the partner you're with i think those are the two things where you really have to be be relentless or um, mm-hmm. no wiggle room. Like right. if it's not the right, then get out. Yeah. You know, I think that's <laughs> get very <out>. true. <laughs> very true. <laughs> so I do want to talk about writing a little bit, but okay. you mentioned something about music. And so mm. I'm actually curious about what, what's your background with music? I know you play the flute, but that's about where it ends. Yeah. Well, I, I have a long history with music. I, I played the flute as a young, that was the instrument I learned to play, but I really wanted to learn to write music. Like that was a big, like I would hear music at night when I would lay down, you know, really? to go to sleep kind of thing. Yeah. I listened to pop music, but I liked classical music too, because the flute is all, for the most part, classical music. So I started playing the piano. I taught myself to play the piano and took mm-hmm. lessons so I could start composing. So I actually bought, and I never do this. I'm so self-taught. I actually bought a little book on music theory. Oh. Just this little slim book. And I understood it within like an hour. I was like, oh, 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 right. oh, I get well, it, I get it, I get it. And I started putting it together. It was and the explanation of what you knew already, sort of. You kind of put it into place. And then I started playing the piano. And But the big leap for me happened. I would learn to play some stuff on the piano. I'd play. I couldn't sing that well. I was very self-conscious about my singing. I think I write about that in Fearless Writing. So I played. Like I started developing some information. But in my 40s, I got... I really wanted to compose on the computer because I thought, well, that would, because I don't have the chops to play what I can hear, you know, Mm -hmm. and I just wasn't interested in like really studying the piano in that way. And I remember the day I had GarageBand, you know, on my Mac. Yeah. And I had it 
And I'm so, I wouldn't Google how to use or anything because I'm so like that. But at one point I figured out how to drop one note into the, like I could, instead of just dropping in loops or things they had written, like I could put a note on there. Yeah. From one note, I was on to piano concertos and and I just need to know how to put a note (laughs) into the computer. And then I learned, and I started writing stuff in a, just a rush classical stuff and then more pop stuff and now i sit at my piano and i'll play and i'll sing stuff and it's so been you great still play now oh, oh yeah now i compose stuff on garage band i'll sing it and record it and listen to it on my thing it's practically the only music i listen to is the stuff i write now wow my podcast and stuff the music you hear is stuff i wrote and i lay that down there oh. you know it was interesting in terms of writing because when i yeah. started writing music it was so helpful because i was in a place a transition place in my writing and music you just have to listen you, you sit and you have to let the music come to you and you're really hearing it. But that was helpful for writing because, you know, it's not an intellectual process, the, the music. There is an intellectual process to it once you start layering in chords and figuring out what key you're in. All this, there's a, some of that, mm-hmm. but it's much more emotional and hearing, yeah. you know, and what feels right and what doesn't. That should yeah. go up. It shouldn't go down. Why? Why should it go up? And that just feels like... I didn't realize I was writing music, how I had not been applying that same felt listening to my prose, to the stories I was telling. And I wanted the stories to feel more like what it felt like to write music. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, I think, a big breakthrough for me in terms of freeing up my creativity in my 40s, yeah. really. So I, yeah. I do that pretty much every day. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, now. That- makes a lot of sense to me given what I've read about the way you approach writing because it's much more about what's already in you coming out correct as you say music is it just is it doesn't have that you can't analyze it you can analyze it but I remember when I was in college I dropped out of college and I think the reason I dropped out was that I was not I was not interested in intellectual understanding of things. And there's right. nothing wrong with an intellectual understanding of things. I watch the news right. and it's largely intellectual understanding of things. I'm much more interested in an emotional understanding of things. Right. Though I did not know that at the time, but that was my struggle I had. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to Beethoven my freshman year in college thinking, you can't analyze this. You can't do to Beethoven what you do to Shakespeare. But to me, there's no difference between Beethoven and Shakespeare. They're doing the same thing. But because there's language and stories, you can do this thing to Shakespeare mm-hmm. or T.S. Eliot or whatever that you can't do to Beethoven. You just have to experience Beethoven. And I thought that's what I want from art. I don't want to break it down in the way you kind of have to, because otherwise, what would you do in a class? I don't even know, uh, other than break it down intellectually. Well, in my music theory class, so I went to school for music. Oh, um, oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) And it was an interesting circumstance because I went to Northeastern University, which is not a music school. And I started off as an English major. Yeah. But then I joined the chorus and very quickly I decided I can't not do music because nice. I, it had, I'd sung in choruses my whole life and I had never been really exposed to classical music until college. And right. when I joined the Northeastern Choral Society and got immersed in classical music, I was like, I couldn't stay away from it. Right. It was one of these things I yeah. had to go towards. So then when I became a music major, had to take all these theory classes and all yeah. that, which I didn't like at all. It turned music into math. And I think right. that that was one of the 
I don't know, philosophical objections to people who love music is saying, you know, you kill it when you dissect it, like it should be magical. And if you can pull it apart and explain what's going on, it's like. Well, and the thing is, I I think, so Paul McCartney could not read music. You know, he didn't even read music. But he obviously knew music. now, I think. No, I don't think so. I think he still doesn't. Yeah, and Lennon didn't. So I kind of like the mathematical aspect of it a little oh, bit, yeah, a little yeah. bit. But the problem is you can put, do a one, four, five, six progression, and it's just going to sound good every time. It's purely intellectual. Right. You know, you can write a song intellectually right. and it'll sound like music. And I heard um, that Hans Zimmer, the um, uh, film composer, composer yeah. Yeah. yeah, he said something really good. Don't compose at the piano. He said, because you will go, you will rely on things you already know. Better to have to hear something and then go to the piano and wow. find it. That's and I interesting. think he's yeah. right. Or you'll yeah. hear it first, then find right. it on the piano. Because you can sit there at the piano and make music that yeah. you're not actually that's not coming through you. Yeah. You know, and yeah. To me, the the theory is there when you're wanting to find out, like, okay, I'm looking for a certain feeling. I'm not getting it. Well, okay, maybe right. it's a minor seventh. Maybe it's a right, right. You know, you start doing, and then you kind of can draw upon some of the things you learn. But I, I learned my theory. I mean, I got complete idiot's guide to music theory. I picked that up just to learn some <laughs> stuff because I didn't. There were a yep. few things I didn't really understand. I'm still. I was terrified of seventh chords forever. I thought they were too. Yes, you know, there's way too I wouldn't much modulate. there. I couldn't leave the key. I had to stay in the key, and now That's I'm funny. Myself. So, well, that's very interesting. And it's fun to hear about. So, so what about writing then? I mean, because there's clearly some overlap and some connection as you mentioned, but how, how do you write? When do you write? What is your writing process? So my writing process is I sit right here at this desk every day at about 6.20 AM. I get up at 5.40. My wife and I meditate. We read a little bit of something, usually something inspiring or self-helpy, kind of just to just to ground me. Yeah. Uh, she reads it aloud. I listen, and then I get my coffee, and I'm here by six twenty or whatever. Yeah. And I write for about an hour or two in the morning. That's the morning is my primo time. Yeah. That's where my mind is clearest. You don't have any. I talk about this in Fearless Writing, the class, the next book. I have a chapter about starting. And your mind is clearest in the morning, I think. You you don't have any of the momentum from the day that you're having to expunge. So I sit down and sometimes if I'm working on a book, I, you know, I'll reread the chapter I'm working on or finish that. Or if I need a new chapter, I'll look at my notes for what I might want to do next. Or if I write essays and I do about two or three of those a week, I just sit there and I got nothing. I have a blank page and it's like, well, what are we going to talk about today? What's interesting to me. And all I need is one little kernel at that point. It's like your one note. My one note. I just need one interesting sentence and I can usually go. So that's where I start. And then, but often I have, sometimes I have multiple projects I need to work on. Like I need to finish an essay or something. So I'll write sometimes again in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, It's a little more challenging for me because I have to let go of the day. I prefer doing other kinds of work through the, like interviews or editing or stuff, but, but I can do it. I can reread my work at any time, but the, you know, having new stuff come to me, it's easiest in the morning. That's if there's something I really want to get, I do it first thing in the morning. Yeah. And And is that, do you have multiple writing goals you're working on at one time or? No, I mean, I mean, well, I like to write a certain number of essays a week for one for I write for the Good Men Project and for Author Magazine. I try to do one or two a week. Yeah. Um, You know, if I'm on deadline with a book, then I have it. But I'm always ahead of my deadlines. I never 
There's no way. I can't imagine a publisher wanting a book before I could finish it. It just seems I, I'm, I'm pretty fast. I write very yeah, fast. Right. And um, fearless writing, there's like, I don't draft really anymore. It's pretty much one draft. I mean, editors will go through and we'll have back and forth, but for the kind of writing I do now, I don't draft really. It's just one wow. shot. Wow. It just comes yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. And I mean, stuff changes, but not, I trust it can just, let me just say this about why, how I came to that, yeah. which is for a long time I wrote, I was writing five blogs, essays, but they were essays a week, one a day, right. five yep. days a week, right? For Author Magazine, because we wanted a lot of content. So that's a lot. You know, they were only 400 words, but I wanted them to be complete. I didn't want them to just be little notes. I wanted them to be a complete experience, right? Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, okay, even 400 words, you can you can really agonize over it. And I said to myself, I'm going to see how well I can, because I had other things I wanted to write too. And I said, I'm going to see how well I can do in 40 minutes. I'll give myself 40 minutes to write it. Mm-hmm. And it'll be as good as I can get it in 40 minutes. And then the next one will be better. And the next, so I won't try and perfect this one. I will just get better at writing a 400 word piece in 40 minutes, give or yeah. take. And that requirement made me stop trying to perfect it. It loosened me up and it got me to trust in something that was, sort of smarter than I was, something that knew what I didn't. And the Mm -hmm. things usually just came together on their own. And I learned how to put myself into a frame of mind that they could be finished in that time frame and in that length. And it really taught me a lot about the role of the writer, that it's not about perfecting something. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about craft, even although you'll, that will be helpful, but can you get into the right frame of mind and stay there? The, mm-hmm. And do you trust that the thing that really knows how to finish it will finish it instead of you? Yep. You know, just you because often I finish it and and it's always I made my career in a way on my last paragraphs where I would really hit it home. Like I really hit the landing spot. And I would usually feel surprised when I did that. Like I mm-hmm. would feel like I discovered something at the end, and that's right. how I knew. And I had to trust in that. And so it was a great yeah. teaching experience for how to how I really wanted to write and what was possible and what could come through just on its own first draft yeah that that actually reminds me so I worked in radio for many years many many years and um in the past I don't know seven, five, seven years or so, it, your description about like a daily blog reminds me of a spot that I would write. Now, this was a 15 second thing. So, and it had a format. So it's literally, is like seven seconds to plug in every day that I wrote slash co-wrote with the person who voiced it every day. Right. And it became, it, it became a discipline. So I knew every day I was going to have to write one of these in that scenario that was constantly running through my head before I got to the point where I had to sit down. So I, I don't you were know. Running, like, what am I going to write about today? What's yeah, it going to be today? It's like, I kind of... know I had to write something for this spot yeah. every day. So it would be, and I think that there's something maybe when you talk about that mindset that I do, I've discovered, or it's sort of, has happened because it's worked is I spend a lot of time doing things that try and get me into the mindset where when I do sit down, I have an idea to work on. And that's true for this podcast for mindset is everything. Yeah. You know, I've come to understand about writing. It's good to have an idea, 
But even if I have an idea, mm-hmm. quote unquote, I still have to be in the mindset to, to allow the idea to grow. It, the, really, your main job as an artist of any kind is to be in the correct mind frame that allows art to occur. Mm -hmm. If you can get into that mind frame and you have the skill, enough skill with whatever that form is, whether it's speaking or writing or music, but you've got to be able to be in the right mind frame. And if you leave the mind frame, then you lose the ability to let it through in a new creative connected way. Mm -hmm. If you have enough craft, you can sort of fake it. And, And I can now imitate myself (laughs) <laughs> I can, like I know how I write when I'm connected and right. so I can imitate what Bill sounds like. And I, That's very I funny. and sometimes I'm like, I got to just finish this thing. And I feel myself tempted to just imitate. What sort of would the Bill way say I, in this scenario? What, 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 yeah. What did I say before? Like actors will do it sometimes. I used to act. And if you're doing a show a lot, you can start imitating the way you did it when you were really on the day before. But you don't want to, you want to find it again that night, even though you know the same cadence, you have the, no, you want to find it new each time. Yeah. Well, I feel like I could talk about many other things in that sphere, but why don't we, why don't you introduce to me the piece that you're going to read today? Sure, sure. And how recently did you write this? Because when you had, wow, (laughs) because I was like, that's right. (laughs) Wondering how that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened is you said, had you know you, you told me the format and i had some ideas from the book coming out which to your listeners it's going to be called everyone has what it takes a writer's guide to the end of self doubt it's coming out june 1st from penguin look for it where all fine books are sold it is more like what i'm about to read everyone has what it takes is similar to fearless writing in that it deals with the creative process but it is more narrative there's more stories sort of it's more based around story and a little less instructional So anyway, I had some ideas, but then I started, I was working on a new book and I started writing this chapter and I thought, oh, this is about death. Well, that's the thing you can't write. That's the thing. And so I thought this would make a good, a good chapter, a good essay for your piece. And so, yeah, I finished it and sent it off to you basically. Wow. Okay. So, and just to be clear, because I want to make sure. So you have the book that's coming out in June. You have the book coming it, out in June. Is everyone called, has everyone has what it takes. Everyone has what it takes. This does not but have this a title. Is, yet. This is not in that book. That is this, this is, is in the not next in that book. This is whenever the next book will the next book I am writing. I don't know what it's going to be called yet, but I believe it's going to be it is about trying to lead a creative life. I work with clients, mm, and one yeah. of the challenges I've, which is a fascinating challenge, is that just to be to make have, supposedly try to make your living. Yeah. In any or any portion of your living, living from being creative, meaning generating something new, doing yeah. something that hasn't been done before, brings with it all kinds of challenges around the unknown, specifically around the unknown, what is uncontrollable, whereas so much work we do has the illusion of control, mm-hmm. the illusion of, illusion, of predictability. Yes. You know, and with writing, to, I deal with writing, but all the creative work, it just strips that illusion away. You just don't get to know. I, Alice Hoffman, the novelist Alice Hoffman, I loved talk to her. She said, you know, every time I sit down to write a novel, and she's written a lot of them, she'd said, I feel like I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to write a novel because that novel is not the same as the last novel. Yeah, you got to learn it again. I know. And you have to get really comfortable with the unknown, with yeah. uncertainty. Yeah. And I was surprised because I have been creative all my life. Yeah. When I was a kid, I knew I wanted to write. I mean, I was writing books when I was 13 or like, this is all I've ever known. I got used to that in a way I didn't understand was a thing I was getting used to. Mm-hmm. And then I would work with adults who really wanted to write. And more than the craft, it was 
if I really want to do this, that means I am living based on this thing that where's it, where's the control? Where's the order? Where's the structure? And it's a whole different relationship. Yeah. So that's what the next book is going to be about. Wow. I believe. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So listeners should understand it is a chapter in a book, but it reads, I try to make the chapters things that read pretty much on their own. So you let me know when you want me to start this thing. So go ahead, just introduce it, give, give us yeah. a title and then go for it. All right. So this is called The Worst Thing. I met my wife, Jen, when we were both seniors in high school in Providence, Rhode Island. She moved to Seattle at the end of the school year, and I was heartbroken. I actually told my mother at the time, I think she's the one. I honestly do. My mother nodded patiently because I was 18, and what 18-year-old actually knows, he has found the woman he'd like to marry. Though I couldn't articulate it at the time, I knew I loved her because I didn't care what she thought about me or whether our feelings were real or whether this would last. There was none of the drama I'd experienced with my other girlfriends. I liked being around her in a way that was at once new and quite familiar. I was a very romantic young man. I felt romantic love was the highest possible expression of relationship. Love wanted nothing other than more of itself. In my mind, there was no success or failure with love, nothing to achieve, nothing to prove. With love, there was just being with the person and that was enough. What could be better than that? I could think of absolutely nothing. It was life's heartbeat. But now, Jen was gone. We hadn't broken up. There had been no fights, no unreconcilable difference. Life, fate, had simply taken her from me. It was like death in that way, or at least that was how I'd imagined death, this indifferent force that could pluck someone more or less at random from the earth. This was in 1983, and while she was still quite alive, Seattle was so far away she might as well have traveled to the moon. I began dreaming of her as if she died. She'd be there beside me one moment, and I was relieved and overjoyed because her moving hadn't been real, and now we could be together still. But then I'd look away, and when I turned to her again, she was gone. I'd awaken feeling as if I'd lived through the day she left all over again. Soon I dreamt of my own death as well. It was always my execution. My jailers were coming for me and there was nothing I could do to prevent the end of something I wanted to continue. Despite my dreadful dreams, I often romanticized death in the years immediately following Jen's move to Seattle. I was not religious, nor did I have any notion of life after death. Yet, there was something all-powerful about death, the end awaiting everyone, young or old, rich or poor. In a strange way, it was like love in that it did not care about success or failure or money or any of the many mountains we humans spend our days scrambling up and claiming. But I also feared it. Not strangely, the end of my life, but the moment right before I died, before the gallows fall, when everything I did in life, all I found so meaningful was suddenly rendered meaningless. It was like graduating high school. I was the editor of our school's yearbook, and in our office was stored a single copy of every yearbook dating back to the 1920s. I'd occasionally flip through some of the old editions, the black and white faces of the students standing in the familiar halls. Many of them were still alive somewhere, yet their names meant nothing in the school any longer. Many people knew my name at that school. I was on sports teams, and I read the news in the morning on the school radio, yet the day I graduated, I'd be like a ghost there. 
a memory that had no role or belonging. It all seems so important, and then it isn't. Years later, after I'd moved to Seattle to be with Jen, and after I'd been married and had kids and was writing novels I couldn't sell, something odd began happening. I used to be quite comfortable having my picture taken. You might even say I took a good picture. Yet after about 10 years in the restaurant where I'd been working as a waiter, I noticed something missing in my eyes in every photo. I was there physically, but it was like my presence had vacated the instant before the picture was taken. In fact, every summer, Will, one of the other waiters, threw a big outdoor party in his beautiful garden. Everyone at the restaurant was invited. I went only once and I had a lovely time. Will demanded he take my picture to prove he had convinced me to attend. I sat on his front steps, aware by this time of my relationship to the camera, and tried to remain present. Apparently, I did not. Will brought the picture of me into the restaurant the next week and hung it on the wall in the waiter station because of how hilariously odd and pale I looked. Louise, the Guatemalan grill cook, noticed the picture and began to laugh. Phantasma, he said, pointing at the photo. What's Phantasma? Ghost, he said. I call you Phantasma from now on. I had a new nickname. I knew what was happening, though I couldn't quite believe it. I was so ashamed of my failure, of the unhappy details of my very existence, that I wanted to disappear until I could be proud of myself again. I hated how invisible I felt, the waiter, the servant whose opinion meant nothing. And yet, I also didn't want anyone to see me. I will sometimes joke with my students or other writers that I could easily wallpaper my office with all the rejection letters I received in those years. It was practically all I knew. No, 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 thank you. It's not what we're looking for at this time, no. Rejection is the exact opposite of what a writer is looking for. You might even say it's the worst possible outcome. For something I've written to succeed and to really live in the world, it must be accepted. I hated every one of those rejection letters. I tried to be stoic about it, be a grown-up about it, told myself not to be upset that this is what it is to be a writer. Yet when I sent out my query letters or my manuscripts to agents and publishers, I did so with a mixture of excitement and dread. I always hoped that this would be the one, my breakthrough that would at last set me free. But I also feared the rejection, feared it, frankly, as if I'd never experienced it before, as if it could deliver a wound from which I would never recover. It took me years of regular rejection to finally recognize my strange relationship to it. I turned to Jen one day and said, I fear rejection like the next one will literally kill me, kill my dream of writing, just end it. Except I've been getting rejections for years and they never end anything. It's like I'm saying, okay, this one didn't do it, but surely the next one will. It was as if rejection wasn't the worst thing that could happen to a writer, even steady rejection for 10 or 15 years. I could understand it intellectually, but my ego would hear none of this to my ego. It was as if I did in fact die, only to be reborn, to be killed again by the next rejection, each death as tragic and terrible and unacceptable as the next. I've come to understand the ego as a necessary tool for getting about in the world. It's the awareness that I'm here and you're there, that on this planet, I, William Bill Knauer, am a unique self-contained entity with a unique history and unique desires and memories. It's necessary because in truth, William Knauer is ultimately an artificial concept in the same way a story's beginning and ending are artificial. Life 
just keeps going and going. But a story can't. For the story to serve its unique, specific purpose, the author must choose a starting and ending point. And just as life keeps going and going, so too I am not really separate from all the other people not named William Knauer. This reality is unknowable through the five senses. It's always felt more than seen or heard or even understood intellectually. And yet to write, I rely upon it. I don't know how young or old my readers are. I don't know where they live or what they believe. All I really know is that they're human. To connect to a reader about whom I know nothing, I must draw from a purely human part of myself. The more I do so, the more I have accepted that that's who I really am more than the name I have been given or even my history or desires. Who I really am is something universal and eternal. Unfortunately, like most people, I get confused about who I really am. I introduce myself as Bill and people ask what Bill does or has done. And I tell them, always feeling a bit as if I'm lying. The more confused I get, the more I fear death in all its forms. Failure is death to the ego. To the ego, I am my accomplishments for they are the measure of my worth. How else would you measure your value if you are only this body, this self-contained entity? And so the rejection arrives and I am nothing. And if I am nothing, I don't exist, I am dead. Fear of the death that is failure has kept many people from living a creative life. It is no linguistic coincidence that comedians say they die when a set goes poorly. For stand-up comics, dying on stage is a necessary rite of passage. If a comedian lives in fear of a bad show, they will never be able to have a good one. They must live through the supposed worst thing that can happen to them and know they will come out intact on the other side. Perhaps they'll learn something about their craft from the bad set, or perhaps they won't, but hopefully they will learn that it doesn't actually kill them. Doesn't prevent them from getting on stage again unless they choose not to. There is much I could have learned from my rejection letters, specifically that I was writing the wrong kind of story. I could have learned this from how it felt while writing those stories, as well as how it felt when I received the rejections, the letters being an amplification of the discomfort I endured by first rejecting myself. Whenever I try to make myself do something or be something I am not meant to do or be, I am rejecting myself. I could have learned that from the rejection letters, but I didn't. I was stubborn, but I did learn that I could survive them, that they were not, in fact, the worst thing that could happen to me. This is true also of having the girl you love move away. Yes, I was heartbroken, and yes, life seemed unfair. Though when we found each other again, we agreed it was best that we had had a few years to grow up before we began our real relationship. That was interesting to me, that life was so kind, keeping us apart until we were ready to be together. But what was more important was that I saw that Jen was not the source of my love, that the existence of love within me had nothing to do with her. She was someone with whom I could most effortlessly express that love. Yet it had existed before I met her and after I met her and would exist still if she should pass away. This was a little hard for the young romantic in me to accept that I had always had the thing I yearned for, that it couldn't be taken from me. You can't really love someone if you fear them leaving. 
if you think they have something you need. You can't love someone if they have to be with you for you to be okay, for life to have meaning. For you to love someone, you must also be lovable. And you cannot be lovable if you are not complete as you are. As I said, I knew I loved her because I didn't care what she thought of me. I liked her and loved her as she was. I do not believe that actual physical death is the worst thing that can happen to a person. This would mean the story of every single life ends badly, that the great arc of our experience is aimed directly and inevitably at a terrible, tragic conclusion. I do not know how to live with this concept of death hovering over my days, forever whistling past a graveyard. It makes a god out of death something I must respect and kneel to so it doesn't take me prematurely. If it's the worst thing, then it's the most powerful thing, more powerful even than love and joy. If you're like me and every person I've ever met, you've already experienced the worst thing that can actually happen to you, and it's simply the thought, I can't be happy. I can't be happy because I'm a failure, because I'm poor, because I have no talent, because she left me, because I'm sick, because someone died. That's it. It will never get worse than that. How bad it gets will depend only on how often you think it. I've thought it plenty, and it's like death in life. It's a death thought. For what exactly is the point of being alive if you literally can't be happy? If that were actually true for me, I'd hop right off the tallest building I could find. Except that most of us don't, do we? We don't because even as we say we can't be happy, we know it's not true. It seems true, perhaps based on some idea of happiness we'd created in our minds, some notion that once we have this or that, then we'll be happy. And yet the thought, I can't be happy, as terrible as it is, as life-draining as it is, is a lie. Or, to be kind, a misunderstanding. What my ego misunderstood about success was that I didn't have to publish something so I could know my value. Rather, I was meant to write something that expressed what I valued. And once I did, I naturally found success. Your happiness, what you value, the thing you want to see more of in the world, the thing you want to share in your creative life lives within you already. It always has and always will. It cannot be killed or wounded or extinguished. It is the light of life itself, shining with your unique, particular shape and hue. There is nothing to judge, nothing to measure. There is only learning how best to express it. So, That's it, baby. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. You did a fantastic <laughs> job. You really... You pushed through that. You were like on fire. I was. I, I like. I do. I like reading stuff aloud. It's a yeah. pleasure. I'm going to be doing the audiobook for the next for the one coming out. I've never done an audiobook. Excellent. They're going to let me do it and pay me for it. Thank that you. That is the best. I can't tell you how happy that makes me because um, I actually well because you said this I will say I have had trouble not only with getting pieces rejected but with even hitting submit, because I don't know why I am like afraid to hit submit. Um, so I submit very few things. And therefore, when I've actually hit submit, they don't get published. Right. Well, 
I got a yes last week. I hey. was beside myself because, and this comes back a little to what you're doing. It's such a bleeping conundrum of how to do the thing that most wants to come out of you and how then that somehow is magic. I'll say magic, but I really resist that characterization. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, it's magic that it somehow then works. The topic of all my little thing is actually about how I believe so strongly that writers should read their own work and that how allowed. I should have yeah, allowed for audiobooks. And when I started listening oh, to audiobooks, oh, oh. when I started listening to them, this will be in the piece, which I can also just say I'm, now here I'm promoting myself, but it's going to be in the Brevity blog in April. Nice. And I was talking about how the first audiobook that I listened to was Gloria Steinem, but Did she, she read only read the intro. And then it was Deborah Winger after that. And I was insulted. <laughs> <laughs> well, Deborah Winger is pretty good. I, you know, I'm sure that Gloria Steinem would be a great reader of her own work because she's she a great public, she's a great public speaker, right? She's but brilliant. But I will say this: yes, uh, a lot of writers don't always know. It's a different skill set, uh, you know. It is a I different know skill set. People say that, but this is my thing. Okay, I, well, if I, you can do it, if you can get it out of them, <laughs> you know, then go for yeah, it. Yeah, I I think I could. I mean, I and I love coaching people. I love hearing people. That's why right. I wanted to have writers read their work aloud. interesting yeah interesting what a what an interesting uh side passion or central i don't know if it's your side or i know passion. it's it's a little it's bit a, of a niche you want you want them to do it in their own voice yeah it's yes. a different thing it, you have to loosen up you know yep. you got to get you got to get relaxed and sort of enter the piece you know absolutely and and as i've thought about this a lot i think what you write about flow state that's exactly you have to tap oh, yeah. back into that when you are getting ready to read your piece, because it's the same thing. It's, it's you, it's your own expression. It is. It is. Yeah. Well, that is interesting. Uh, I don't read my stuff aloud. I write too much. I just can't, but I love the opportunity to read it to people yeah. in the, in the right setting. It's you know? fun, isn't it? it? Oh, I like I, it. I think um, it's fun. I, you know, every America, you know, the book signings, when I do a book event, I tend to keep the reading short. I yep. maybe, you know, five minutes like that. Yep. That's, but it's a funny story. Mm -hmm. The novelist and Andre Debuse, I've gotten oh, to yes. know him. He's a wonderful guy. He's out in your neck of the woods. Yeah. Um, he was talking about readings and he said, he said, yeah, I was in Germany. So I went to Germany doing a book tour there. You know, his book got his European release. His, you know, some of his books, you know, went quite global because they got movies made out of them and stuff. He said, I was in Germany where they're doing reading. And he said, how long are you going to read for? Like 20 minutes or so? The guy said, nine he said, what do you mean nine? He said, nine hours. <laughs> and so and really? so they read the whole damn book. And these people just sat down. Oh, my God. Or maybe it was two hours. Maybe it was two or three. It couldn't have been but, nine hours. Two yeah. or three hours. But it was like a, it was like a theatrical production. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I just hunkered down. And the Germans are all good with it. They just, they just sat, sat there. They just sat there. I don't know if I could. I mean, Andre's a good reader, I suspect, which helps. But, I mean, well, I've sat through some poetry time. readings where it's like, man, tick tock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, that's that's really something. I mean, that is a long time to that's read. That's a long time. I mean, ready. if you're driving along and you're listening. Right. That's a different, different thing. Yeah. Well, so to get back to what this was about, though, um, yeah. is the that conundrum. I, I don't know what 
Describe the conundrum to me in more detail. Yeah, it's about. This is what you go through when you're submitting your work. Is what I go. Yeah. And what I is mean, it you go through? And and it's about writing. It's it's about trying to say the thing that you want to say. Sure. It's about also then finding the right place for it. Because to me, that's another. Oh yeah. It's always yeah. the right match. Um, yep. And so to find the right message for the right place at the right time. So one, I think that's go. why you took that fearless marketing class from me. And one of the things yeah. I came to learn about promoting our work or selling our work, and it's, it's so hard to do because the feeling of rejection is so unpleasant. You don't have to be hurt by it. Uh, you don't have to think anything negative about yourself when it happens, but mm-hmm. the temptation to do so is incredibly strong. Yeah. Um, and it's much easier to hear yes than no. But you have to frame it. You have to get real about what's happening. First of all, you don't know where the right person is or who the right mm-hmm. person is. But all, right. The only thing you really know is why you wrote the story or the book and why you want to share it, what you think the value of that piece is once you've created it. And hopefully in writing it, you've discovered the real value of it. That's always the best thing. And then to say, okay, I know that. Based on what I know about the piece, what do I think would be the best fit for it? And know that what you're doing is you're looking for the right fit as much as the publisher is looking for the right fit for them. Right. If you feel you've written the thing with integrity and you've done the best you could, now it's your job to find the right kind of person. And I've got legions of stories of writers who've had their work rejected only to be accepted and, you know, sold. And everyone has what it takes was turned down by a couple of publishers because we did try a couple of people. Penguin is the biggest publisher in the world. They took it. And so they saw something they didn't, you know? And so this is the nature of it. But you have to focus on what you have and know, which is why you wrote it and why you're sharing it. And let that be the guide towards finding the right, you finding the right person. The thing I liken to it is dating. You don't want to just go find someone to be with. Mm-hmm. You want to find, the question should be who is interesting to me, not who will have me. Right, right. right. Yeah. Now, it's not quite the same with publisher, but it's close. Like, look, mm-hmm. I've got something of value. Who's the right fit for it? Right. You desperately just want the thing in print. I get it, right? But you're going to work with an editor. Mm-hmm. You're going to work with the publisher. or You're going to work with someone. Who's the right person? What are they like? What are they like? What would they right. be like? Think about the piece. Think who's the right kind of fit for it. You know, you can't meet all the editors and agents that you send to, but you can get a sense of them from what they're publishing, and know that you're looking for the right person. You're right. not looking for who will take you. Right. You want to get the power you have. Right. Well, so here's another side to that because I I do feel like it's this constant like here's here's what I have to say and right. I'm putting that out there and yeah. I'm trying to find the place where that's the right place for where that it to belong? be heard. Yeah. So, after Rejection and rejection, I think, as you go through here, rejection, 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 rejection. It can tell you, as you suggest, well, am I, what is this telling me about me? Am I doing something wrong? And I can envision a bit of a blame the victim mentality <laughs> that goes into this. You're that not says, a victim though. So, well, no, that's true. But wait, 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 wait. so okay, you, go ahead. you might, I'm saying this mentality of, 
I'm not successful, therefore I'm not doing it right. So right. I have to, so what am I doing wrong? And then there's this like, I'm beating so, myself up over right. it. And so this is one of the challenges because when your work isn't accepted, there's usually only two reasons for it. One, you're sending to the wrong person or you haven't told the story the way it's meant to be told. So for instance, everyone has what it takes. Really took me 15 years to publish. I spent years trying to sell it as a memoir called No One Is Broken. Mm. And my agent who sold Everyone Has What It Takes, we sent this thing to everybody. It was a memoir about my experience raising a kid on the spectrum. Yeah, And I loved the title. I wrote, published a piece in the New York Times called No One Is Broken and it got great reception. I thought, this is a memoir. This is it. And I wrote, I know how to write well enough that I wrote a pretty good memoir. But people wanted to make it as a parenting book. I didn't want to write a parenting book and we were kind of selling it that way. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't taking. Yeah. And then I was sitting talking to my wife and we, it was down to one tiny little, tiny, tiny publisher. And I was like, I think she's going to reject it too. And I was like, I'm done with this. And then I was talking, I would give these talks about how everyone has what it takes, but I would base it on stories about my son. And I would kind of combine writing and raising a kid on the spectrum. And I was talking about how everyone has what it takes. And my wife said, well, that's a great title. I said, I know. I said, oh, I wonder. And then I saw it as a book for writers because mm-hmm. a broken writer is someone who doesn't have what it takes. If you don't have what it takes, then right. you're broken. Right? Yes, right. And I realized I had given it to everybody. Some part of me had learned to give it to everybody and that had freed me up. And I wrote that, we sold that book. Wow. More or less once. And I wrote it in nothing. Mm-hmm. And so it got rejected because I had not found, I had one idea of it but I hadn't found the form it wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And then I did. And then I found the publisher and you know, I found the form. I found the agent. I found the publisher and I found its home. Well, so you do, there is a part, yeah. you do have to find the right form. And the, and the only way you can check is to say, you have to be honest with yourself. And sometimes there's no way to answer until it gets rejected. And then finally the idea that wants to come through, come through. But the, regardless of what happens, you are never to be hard on yourself. You're never to beat yourself up. You're never to say you're no good. You gotta never ask yourself what's wrong with yourself. Oh, never ask what's wrong with me because the answer is always nothing. <laughs> the answer is always nothing. Yeah. Nothing wrong with you, but you might right. be telling the story in a way right. that's not right. Yeah. All right. I have to hit pause here just for a minute to weigh in on this conundrum that I continue thinking about the conundrum of being in the right mindset to say what you want to say and then having to not care about whether it's accepted places to know that what you've written is what you have to say. And the idea that if we are not successful, that it is because we are doing something wrong saying, okay, is this my fault then? And if I'm not being accepted, then I must be doing something wrong. This is exactly the experience I went through as a kid when I was raised with the Christian science ideology that being sick and not having health was our own lack of understanding of our perfection as God has given it to us. So we had to not believe what our body was telling us 
that that was a lie in order to see the truth, the universal truth of our perfection as God created us, which is perfect and healthy. Yeah. So, so these artistic conversations parallel this thing that I was raised with that I have indeed been writing about and trying to pull apart in myself and figure out what is what I think and what I feel and what is what I was taught that does not work for me anymore that I am trying to get rid of and toss out and um, I think that these religious versus artistic they're completely different things but because a lot of the language is all the same this is where I have a great deal of interest in this topic so I just had to pause to say that much let's continue do not ask the question what's wrong with me because what will happen is you will get no answer and because there's nothing wrong with you yeah and you will fill that in with who knows what your intellect will say, well, I'm not smart. I don't have the talent. I just don't, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. which is also why I wrote, no, everyone has what it takes. That yeah. question can't be asked for you to be able to really say, am I doing this the way, is this really the story I want to tell? Yeah. Make sure you're telling it the way you want to right, tell it. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's, does that make sense? The creative processes. I mean, that goes back a little bit to what we were saying about it, it can be off by just one iota, but you have to keep reworking tweak what it is until it turns enough that there's I think as you're suggesting here's the thing that that bursts through the message as it can be heard yeah and and as you do the creative process more as you're whatever it is you create you start getting better at sensing when it's off yeah you're faster you know I'm a fast writer now because I a I know what not to do I got Mm -hmm. you know craft of anything so much of it's about what not to do yeah and it so I've just eliminated a whole bunch of roads I'd never go down. And also, I'm very quick to notice, oh, I'm forcing this. I can usually tell in a sentence or so, like, nope, no, no. This is Bill's idea. I want to know what my muse's idea is. I don't, yeah. I don't want to do it myself. So I'm just faster at knowing. And it's like if, as a singer, you know, one of the things I've had to learn to do, singing has been a great lesson for me because I had tremendous self-consciousness about it oh, yeah. because I was told I was a bad singer mm-hmm. and I believed them, but I loved music and I loved music with words and I liked singing, but I had to teach myself, you can hear the, di- you know, I had this great breakthrough when I was listening to a Beatles song, Driving Home, and I was singing along with John Lennon, who sings in my register for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I think he's singing in the key of G. And I think that, and I was right. I got home. I was like, ah, I've started to actually let myself pay attention to know ah, that's an A, that's a G. That's wow. A, you that's know, pretty but I, good because perfect it, pitch is either there or it isn't. But I wouldn't say I'm perfect yourself, pitch, but no, but my range yourself. is so small. That <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> I could like, I I seem to fall into these, in, you know, in this yeah, one yeah. like seven note range. Most of my stuff seems to, you know, like, like and it right where a lot of John Lennon would sing, you know, yeah. for whatever reason. But I was singing along. I said, that feels like a G. That feels like a G. I couldn't tell you if it was a C sharp in the next register. Right, right. <laughs> but I know what it feels like coming out of me. Yeah. You know, but I but that took practice saying, pay attention to the difference and know when you're right. off. Like start hearing it as it's happening. You can hear it. But I didn't believe mm-hmm. I could hear it. Right. Right? Yeah. And then I started saying, no, I think you can. So like start 
paying attention to the difference. And as a writer, you have to know you can know the difference between being forcing and not forcing. And right. if you don't think you know the difference, then just, it'll all happen randomly. But you can feel, is that forced or is that effortless? Is that forced? Is that effortless? And the right story told the right way is always effortless. Like the right work is effortless. The right lover is effortless. Like that's the way it works. Yeah. So evasive, but so obvious too. It's Because we're taught to work hard. We're yeah. taught to like grind away. Right, right. But And that like, doesn't you know, mean we don't put effort into it when the flow is happening, I think, certainly. But you're yeah. right, it should be... It's it's a strange thing. You're not. Yeah. I don't even like to use the word effort because because for me now, mm-hmm. if I'm putting effort in, I'm doing it wrong. But I do have to be disciplined right. in not being effortful. <laughs> like <laughs> I have to I have to like really be like strict with myself. Like don't force anything. Don't start until you feel something real right. there. Yeah. You know, and 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 go ahead and put yourself in the chair, even though you have nothing, and know that something will come if you can relax and let it come. Like the melody, finding a melody, you got to find the effortless way the melody wants to go, not yeah. what you just stick in there. Right. And right. Um, it does require discipline in that way. It does require discipline not to worry, not to project into the future, not to judge yourself. Like that's all discipline. Yeah. Um, disciplined thinking. So here's here's the question that I must ask. I ask everyone. Okay. What was daring about this for you? What was daring about this piece? You know, what was daring was I realized um, I came from a background where I believed socially you had to kneel to death. The Hmm. death was the worst thing. Hmm. And that you had to be afraid of it. The kind of it was like you couldn't if you if you utter that word in public, you know, you know everybody's oh death that we have we all get and I just don't think and I've realized I would I would go to the times I've been to funerals or services I am not sad at all I find it it lifts me oddly because I think at those moments I feel that this isn't over and nothing's been lost and this isn't the worst thing for me it felt like going against you know, almost like someone who'd been raised in a very conservative Christian or re- some religious sect and saying, I don't really believe totally in all these rules and like speaking that out or saying I'm gay or something that they said is unacceptable. I think saying death isn't the worst thing felt like you're not allowed to say that. I don't know, nobody in my family prevented, but that was sort of the feeling I felt culturally for whatever reason. And so to say that it wasn't the worst thing uh, seemed brave to me. Now, I will say I was able to write it as easily as I did because I had already come to, like, I had worked through that, mm-hmm. you know? Right. But I had worked through it, but this was the first time I'd written it in depth like this. Yeah. You know, I thought, like, well, if everyone has what it takes and every could be creative, what is the thing that, why do so few people actually do what they could do. Mm-hmm. Why do so few people not tap into their unique genius? And I think it's fear of death. I think it's fear of death in some form, whether it's physical death uh, or or the egoic death, which is mostly. I think fear of death is a thing that stands in, of some form that prevents people from just living. They're mm-hmm. afraid there's some death waiting for them. The yeah. death of rejection, the death of failure, particularly the death of failure that keeps them from living their own genius and their own unique life. 
and and fear of death, I think, permeates the culture in some form or another. I think we we reiterate in it in each other. We mm-hmm. confirm it in each other. I think just what we're going through with COVID, as terrible as been, if you keep saying death is horrible, death is horrible, death is horrible, even though no one wants to, everyone's going to die. It's going to happen. At some point, it's going to happen. And if you keep saying it's the worst thing, that makes life ultimately awful because yeah. everyone's headed to the same awful end. And I don't know how you intellectually, I don't think most people mean it. I think it's hard for them. I don't think they really mean that it's the worst thing, but they think it is. And they think that unless they say death is horrible, it didn't mean they love the people who died. Right. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons we 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 preach that. In fact, I would say, because I've, I've interviewed a lot of writers who've written memoirs and memoirs often deal with death. Mm-hmm. And it's reiterated to me that what you think about death often is what you think about life. That the story you tell about death influences the story you tell about life. And you need to get, I think, serious about it if you want to live freely, you know, because if you live in fear of it, if you think there's just this great, terrible thing waiting for you and everybody, and if you think failure, if you believe in failure, which I don't anymore, but if you believe in that, it will prevent you from just allowing yourself to pursue the thing you most want to pursue. Yeah. I'm, and I think that there's, there's the fear of creativity um, that is, I think, similar to that, what you're describing about a, a fear of creative death, that if you are, if you fail at your own creativity, that's failing at you somehow. That's right. Like I'm failing at being me. And, and then right. what does that say? What if I put it out there and nobody wants it? That's the big fear. Right. What if right. I put it out there and nobody wants it? Here's the thing. I, I can't hit. I can tell you the answer to that question, which mm-hmm. is everybody wants everything. There is an audience for everything. But I mean, that is just the truth. Like I can't believe yeah. sometimes the stuff that I am reading where like, I have no connection to it. And how did this get published? But they did. And they have readers and published it. But I can tell you that. But you've got to experience it yourself. You have to right. trust that because you were interested, someone else would be interested. But you, but this, I will say this. You have to be merciless in how much you are willing to express the thing you're wanting to express in the way you want. You don't get to shave it or change it for what you right. think people want it to be. Because then it's not it anymore. And it's not it. And then it will be rejected because people will sense the thing missing, you know? Right. I I have a firm belief now after having done this work that everyone has to agree with you. So if you think you can do the job, everyone will agree with you. If you meet someone who is really in their own integrity and, and enjoy supporting people, you can be wobbly and they'll support you. But if you get with someone who's not particularly grounded or isn't paying attention, if you have a little wobble, they will pick up on that. They will agree with you. They will agree with the part of you that doesn't think you belong. And you, everyone will agree with you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you have to be clear about what you're saying about yourself. I remember this woman came to me. She says, you know, I'm writing this book. My husband's not supporting me. And I was like, I get it. Better that he would support you. But when you give it to yourself, he will have to give it to you. And when I lived that, my oldest son, Max, was an odd fellow, very direct, very uh, mm-hmm. say the thing you're not supposed to say sometimes. Mm-hmm. And when he was like 12, we were at the kitchen table. We were talking about respect. 
And I was in the middle of my throes of writing books that weren't getting published and feeling very bad about myself. You know, mm-hmm. I was an ambitious guy and there was, there was nothing was happening. Right. And he said, so he's talking about respect. So again, he's like 12. And he said, you know, for instance, dad, I don't respect you because you have never succeeded. You know, and my father's brain went off. Like I, said, <laughs> I should tell him you shouldn't say those kinds of things to a person and all this. And then I, but then in a moment of blinding wisdom, I said, no, he is only saying about you what you already think about yourself. Mm. When you start respecting yourself, he will. And that, so I said nothing. And lo and behold, as soon as I started giving it to myself, he but couldn't agree with me. He had, he, he could no longer not respect me because I respected myself and I gave it to Right. Myself. Yeah, yeah. You have to, they will, people, you know, if someone, you know, people will try to override what you think about yourself, but if you think you're ugly, people will find it very hard to think you're attractive. And if you think you're boring, they will, it will be really tough for them to disagree with you. As a coach, I'm, I can sometimes hurdle over it with people and pick up on the thing and draw out of them the thing they want. Mm -hmm. But in casual conversation, it's much harder. Yeah. You know, we just agree with each other. So your job is to be the thing that right. you want to draw from people. This is a, a goofy comparison, but what springs to mind for me is, um, you know, we've moved to this house in Maine fairly recently. Oh, and you're in Maine. Yeah. And in right, fact, right. Oh, right. Yeah. In fact, our many topics of my newsletter are about us having people come in and fix up the things that aren't working and this and that. <laughs> so we've met a lot of various service people. And in fact, like plumbers are the rarest of the rare. And even just trying to get someone to show up is the challenge in itself. But all of us to say, there there are the people who we meet in doing this who are just brilliant at being yes. who they are and the way they approach yep. their They're generator the or their plumbing or what, I mean, the, I, my husband and I come away and go, I love that guy. Like he just, <laughs> right. he made me feel so much better about yeah. the fact that we now will have hot water. Because <laughs> right. right. before that, we didn't know if we were going to, and we didn't know what was going on. But my wife and I have gone through that. The master, the master yeah. electrician, the master plumber shows up. And what they always want to do is teach you a little bit. Yes. I love that. Exactly. They're going to explain it to you and you just go, I trust this guy. And trust is just implicit in that. Well, before I I have one other question, because it's sort of tied um, to the to the daring thing, um, because it's also about creativity and death. And I think just I, I don't know, this is maybe the most obvious statement, but how the act of creating is also just the desire for immortality. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. All right. So I'm so glad you brought that up. There's a chapter on that in my book coming out in June. (laughs) And here's what I've come to with that, which is that, yes, the the ego wants immortality. Yeah. A certain kind of immortality, which is people will remember me forever. That is not why you write. But I think there's a misunderstanding that the ego has of something that is linked to that, which is this. In order to create something, you have to tune to something that is eternal, mm. that is that does that cannot die, that is there is no beginning and end to. Life has no beginning or end. Life, life, life has no beginning. I mean, life, I the big will, picture. Yes. It just keeps going and going and going, right. all of it, right? 
And that when you write, when you create something, you are tuning to something that is eternal. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, you are connecting to your own immortality. Mm -hmm. It's right here, right now, that your own inherent immortality, you tune to the thing that, you know, you you tune to your real self doesn't care about dying. It's not worried about that. It's Mm -hmm. just, I always say, you know, your muse, if you think about it, it's like a person that you're working with. She doesn't care how much money you make. She doesn't care. She just wants to play. She just wants to tell the story. (laughs) Great. You worry about the bank account. Let's go. Let's make this thing. None of that means anything to me. What means something to me is the creation. And that's really your true self. And so don't worry. You know, will people remember you? You won't care. But by connecting to something that is eternal, you will remind people of their own sort of eternalness. If you can put it out there, if you connect that part in yourself and put it out there, you will help remind people of that within themselves. And everybody wants that. Everybody wants to be reminded of that. Well, that's an interesting little extra add on, because I mean, I think that how I've thought of it, at least up until that point, um, (laughs) is you know, I wrote in journals sort right. of my whole life and I always lived this little life in my head that I, I never knew who I was talking to in my journal, but I, right. I had this vision that I was talking to the person who will find this hundreds right. of years down the road. And right. that was the thing. And maybe that's the thing I'm tapping into, but that imagining someone who I would never know who would then, well, I would meet through time. That's oh, how I let it all out. Well, I will tell you, that's not a bad technique. I mean, you, the ego can get caught up in that and start wanting praise and attention and all that, because that's mm-hmm. what the ego wants. Well, yes, of course. Right? All the yeah. time. But one thing that I think is important, like when I teach memoir writing and personal essay writing, I will often get somebody will come in and say, I'm writing this for my grandkids, and I want them to know about my mother. And I'm like, I'm not going to help you write that. I'm not right, interested. Right. I want you to write this for someone who doesn't know you and will never know you because that's the person that will force you to write in a way. Because here's the thing. If I told you a story, I would tell it different than I told a six-year-old a story. That right. same story to a six-year-old or a 10-year-old or a man. or so. Everybody, if I meet you, I change the story maybe ever so slightly based on who I think, what you know, what you seem to, you know, I'm going to tell music. I'm going to talk about music with you differently than someone who's never played music, for instance. Right, right, right. right. The, the one that really gets you to understand the subject is the person who knows nothing. Okay, right. now write it for someone who doesn't know you, will never know you, doesn't care about you. Right. How do you tell that story now? Well, that was exactly the person I had in my mind. Like, That's I mean, right. This is before, I don't have kids. I didn't, well, I mean, I didn't have kids. Right. When I was little, I still happened to not have kids. <laughs> so they, I mean, I mean, I don't know if I knew that then, but yeah, I, it is sort of this, I don't know, this far off person that I don't know that I imagine. Anyways. No, no, but that's, you You are you, yeah. you, you used your imagination to create writing for someone who can't know the things you know. And mm-hmm. so you, it forces you to understand them more deeply so that they can understand. Yes. You know, I yes. would say, if you want to write about having twins, write it for someone who's never even had a sibling. Help them understand. If you want to write about uh, death, write about it for yeah. someone who's never, who only ever, all those people, all the people they know have lived forever. Always write it for someone who has never had that experience. That's yeah. how you get to know that experience more deeply. Right, right. Well, so hey, good conversation. Much to think about. Yes, 
I, I have very much enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything else you want to say, chat about? I mean, you've told me about the books coming out, so that's good to know. And you have a website and I, mean, I do. You have a podcast. I love your podcast. I'm oh, thank you. Your podcast. Yes. I, well, the people can go on williamcanower.com and learn about all my stuff. Um, yeah. If you want to check out, learn about me, my website's the best thing because there's links to all the different stuff I do. You know, I've got a bunch of interviews on YouTube that I do, and then I've got the mm-hmm. podcast. And so yeah. go check all that out if you want. I actually coach people one-on-one. I don't have a lot of people I do that with. It's mm-hmm. a limited, but I do that too. Right. I coach writing, but also sort of like I'm a life coach for writers. So it's a little yeah. bit of both, you know. Excellent. So if you're interested in that, you can go check it out. That's all on the website. And the podcast, I will just put a plug oh. in for that because... Author... Yeah, two. author two, author with the number, the number two. two. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's that's. I love doing. I've been doing that for like ten years. I think. I don't know. I've been. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. And the, what I like about it is the fact that you might be talking with an author of a type of book that I go. I have. You're never going to that. Right. But it's a great conversation. That's right. <laughs> So interesting point. I will end on, I had an important moment with that, which is that, you know, I have a very specific reading taste. So, and I have to interview someone every week. So I get a lot of people and most of the books are stuff I wouldn't read. I wouldn't just pick up on my own. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'd started doing these interviews, the video interviews. And I had one scheduled with this guy who was a suspense writer who had written a YA suspense novel. It shifted over to YA. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started reading it and I hated it. I hated <laughs> All yeah. the choices he was making. Yeah. They were, yeah. They were, I mean, it wasn't just stylistically. I just didn't like what it was saying about life, essentially. Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But mostly just his, the way he was handling stuff was just, and I was reading, I was going, and I used to read everything. I don't do, wow. I don't need to anymore, but I would read the entire book, you know. Oh my God. It, it's unnecessary, but I used to do that. And, um, and I'm reading it and griping. And my wife is like, you know, maybe you should stop reading. I said, no, I can't. I can't. I got to <laughs> read it all. Right. And she's, but I'm still reading and still griping and she's getting sick of listening to it. She's like, will you please just stop? I said, fine, fine. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. And so I go into this interview and I'm all worried about how it's going to go because I hated the book. Yeah. Yeah. We had a great conversation because he loved suspense and he loved suspense just the way I loved what I do. And we connected not over that book, but over suspense and loving yeah. something and what yeah. it is to love something. And I thought, ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It does it not matter. matter. It doesn't matter. No. So awesome. that's, that's the great secret behind my, and my other secret is no preparation. <laughs> you know, I know you say that. And I, I, I was trying hard not to prepare. <laughs> well, what you do is different than what I do. But one thing I learned, and this yeah. is true. I learn more about the author. On my podcast, we don't see each other usually. They just call it. We just call it. Oh, okay. I learn more about them the moment they say hello. Just that one word. Hello. Really? I already know more about them than when I read their memoir or yeah. their fiction or whatever. Well, the voice is I a powerful they, thing. Now I know who they are. And now I know who I'm talking to. Right. And I know what's going to be required of me. Yeah. And I used to prepare more. And I go, oh, this is, yeah. I see. This is not who the person, act- I prepared for someone different than who showed up to. Get well, that's, yeah, exactly. It's all so. about being in the moment every time. It's really, that's hard. right. Yeah. That's right, baby. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Hey, this was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for me as well. 
being in the moment, remaining present, trusting yourself, getting ourselves into the flow of the universe in order to write, in order to live, in order to be happy. Boy, what a huge conversation that has stirred up so many things in me. Um, and having to break in and tell you about uh, the things that I struggle with when I try and write and allow myself to, uh, to say the things that I need to say, allow myself to, to feel my gut, to trust my gut. This is my theme is, um, figuring out how to trust my gut because I do feel that when, I pay attention to what the universe is telling me, that is when that flow starts to happen and the expression is coming through me and is not part of me. So I'm going to keep working on that one. But a discussion about death, I mean, that is the biggest one there is in the idea that we can't be happy. And uh, just this past weekend... I went to a Zoom memorial service for a woman I had worked with in Boston who was, talk about being in the present moment, she just exuded that. She was a tremendous voiceover coach, teacher, acting teacher, um, and didn't share with most of the large community that she greatly influenced um, hadn't shared that she had metastatic breast cancer. And so when I found out, and I think when many people found out she died at the beginning of March, we were shocked. But in putting that together with is death the worst thing. I mean, it's pretty bad. (laughs) It's, if it's not the worst thing, it's a damn scary thing. Whether it is artistic death or actual death. And we see that around us every day. But what was also so apparent at this memorial, um, was all the joy and fun that came across through her work with all the students and coachings and people she had had one-on-one personal connections with through her whole life. And uh, so that is the larger thing I know I try and tap into. What is that connection of joy, of meaning, of significance, um, of truth that we find in ourselves and can connect with some other individual. So really great conversation, Bill Knauer. Thank you so much. Um, next time on Daring to Tell, it will be me. I had hated that my only relative, who was my connection to this place that I love, this place that spoke to my soul, was somebody I didn't even like. 
follow all of the episodes of Daring to Tell for free at Spotify or Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions of your own or a hit pause moment like I had in this episode, I hope you will email me. My email address is michelle at michellerado.com. Michelle with two L's, R-E-D-O. Thank you so much for being here and for daring to listen.